Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we will look at verses 11 through 16 this morning. But by way of review, our first point, we'll just kind of recap last week briefly. So let me give you the full force of the text by reading Matthew 5, 3 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, the black hardcover pew Bible in the pew in front of you or in the chair in front of you, it's on page 858. Hear then the word of God from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. These are Jesus' words to his disciples on the mountain. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on, situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that you would continue to speak to us. We thank you that we can worship you by reading your scriptures out loud. That we can worship you by hearing your scriptures read aloud. And now we're asking, Father, that you would open our minds to understand this passage and how it points to the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we see him, that we would savor him, and that as we savor him, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray that you would transform our lives in such a way that we shine like the sun that the world might see the glories of Christ, that they might repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved, be converted, be justified, and then turn around and follow you for the rest of their lives, learning to obey everything you've commanded. So help us now. We need you. We need to abide in you and your words to abide in us. So please help us, we pray. We are desperate for you. We are bankrupt. We are on life support without you. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you, like every other Christian and like every other person, when they reflect on their lives, especially when they're young, you want to make a difference in this world and you want your life to count. You don't have to be a Christian to have that desire. You just need to sit back for a second and realize, what is this all about? What is my life all about? And deep down, there's a resonance in every human, because you're made in God's image, whether Christian or not, to want to make your life count, to make a difference in this world. But for many of us, it isn't crystal clear how we are to make this difference in the world. It's not crystal clear to us how to stand up and stand out and make an eternal difference that lasts beyond our lifetime. Part of that is intentional by God. God doesn't design this world in such a way that you can always see the impact of your life so that you don't get carried away with the results as much as just doing the work. A second problem, though, is not just that it's not clear to us how we're to make this difference or even is it actually making a difference. We're scared of rejection. We're scared of of rejection as we try to make a difference in other people's lives. If you try to make a difference in another person's life and they don't like it or they don't want it, they might reject you. Or you might get a large measure of people disapproving of your efforts to make a difference. So there's a fear of rejection. There's a fear of disapproval. There's a fear that you'll be misunderstood. And then at the core of that fear is the fear that we won't be happy. It will steal our joy. If I try to make a difference in this world, if I try to make a difference in this church, if I try to make a difference in my neighborhood and make my life count, I might be misunderstood or maligned, rejected, or disapproved of, and then I won't be happy. And therefore, I'm not sure I want to do this. But there's also the desire to actually make the difference in your family and make the difference in your community. So here's the good news. Jesus gives us a simple command that will erase the fear of rejection. It will erase the fear of your joy being stolen from you. And it will clear up the fogginess of not knowing what to do. A simple command. I'll give it in two words, and then I have to explain it a little bit, which is going to take the rest of the sermon. But let me give you the two words. Be glad. Be glad. Be happy. Rejoice. You want to make a difference in this world? You want your life to count? Be glad. Now, the main goal of this passage is to expand on this. Let me give you the main goal here, just by way of introduction. The main goal is this. Be glad when you're opposed in your public righteousness. Be glad when you're opposed by those whom you're seeking to love and bless. Sorry. I realize some of you are writing, and I'm just expanding. Let me just restate the phrase. Sorry for those who are taking notes. Let me say it clearly. Be glad when opposed in your public righteousness so that you shine Christ's gospel light in this world. There it is. Be glad when opposed in your public righteousness so that you shine Christ's gospel light in this world. That's how you make a difference. That's how you change things in your family and in your church and in your neighborhood and in your community and in the world, by rejoicing in opposition, 
by being glad when people disapprove of you and misunderstand you for righteousness sake. I mean, if you're glad when people oppose you, are you going to fear rejection? No. Are you gonna, is your joy going to be stolen from you if you rejoice when you're opposed? No, because that actually becomes your joy. Jesus flips your fear on its head. You're scared that they're going to reject you? Guess what? They're going to reject you. You're scared they're going to malign you? Guess what? Some people will malign you. You're scared that it's going to take your joy? Guess what? That is your joy. If you grasp that, nothing can stop you. Amen. No one can hold you back now. You know what to do, public righteousness. You're not scared of being misunderstood because you understand you will be. And you're not scared of your joy being stolen because this becomes your joy in the Lord. So, why should you be glad? Because you're saying, okay, that's an easy command to say. Be glad when you're opposed. That's not fun. There's no happiness immediately coming to my heart when I get opposed, when I get criticized, when I get misunderstood and misrepresented. All right, let me give you four reasons, and that's the sermon now. The four reasons why you should be glad when you're opposed, okay? When you get opposed by your family members, when you get opposed by your church members, when you get opposed by your neighbors, when you get opposed by non-Christians in the world, by Christians in the world, why should you actually rejoice and be happy in that moment rather than sad and disheartened? Jesus gives us four reasons in this text. Here they are. I'll tell you them all, all of you at once. I'll say them all at once, and then we'll, go, we'll break it down. Be glad when you're opposed because Jesus made you for righteousness. That's verses 3 through 11. Because Jesus will reward you in heaven, verse 12. Because Jesus made you salt and light, verses 13 through 15. And because Jesus sent you to shine his light in the darkness, verse 16. Those are four reasons why you should be glad when you're opposed. Because Jesus made you for public righteousness. Jesus will reward you in heaven. Jesus made you salt and light. And Jesus sent you to shine his light in this dark and dying world. If you get that and you grasp that, you can actually be happy and rejoice in opposition. And then nothing can stop you from being an agent of change in this world. All right. Let's look at these one at a time. Number one. And this one's a quicker one, okay, because we're just recapping. Be glad when you're opposed because Jesus made you for righteousness. Verses 3 through 11. Be glad when you're opposed because Jesus made you for righteousness. Remember, in verses 3 through 10, which we covered for the last two Sundays, blessed are you. Jesus blessed you. You were cursed in your sin. Jesus blesses his people. And when he blesses you, he changes you. He makes you someone who is poor in spirit. He makes you mourn over your sins and mourn over the sins of others, and mourn over the brokenness in your life, and mourn over the brokenness in the lives of others. And when you are poor in spirit, you understand you're bankrupt, and you start mourning for other people's sins and for your sins first, then you become humble and gentle towards others. And when you're humble and gentle towards others, you start to have this hunger and thirst, this insatiable desire for surpassing righteousness. In your life before God, in your own personal holiness, and in this whole world. Amen. All right? So you desire, Jesus blessed you and made you to desire surpassing righteousness. That was the sermon from two weeks ago. Then last week, we also get the other th- four Beatitudes. Blessed are the, um, 
Blessed are the merciful, the compassionate. So God, Jesus blessed you and made you compassionate. You care about others in their need. You can't turn away when you see it. Jesus changed you. He blessed you and made you compassionate. And so you're pure in heart. You care about them not for your own gain, not for your own exaltation, but for their good and God's glory and your joy in that whole transformation. And so now you're pure in heart. You have pure motives for why you're compassionate. And so what do you do? You become a peacemaker. When you see conflict, when you see tension, you don't run from it. You run to it. And you try to make peace because you care about everyone. And you care about their relationship with God and with others. So you make peace. Jesus made you a peacemaker. And then in making you a peacemaker, is everyone going to want you to make peace? No. Are they going to want you to, are they going to want you, are they going to want to hear you need to repent and make peace with God? No, not always. Are they going to want to hear that you need to ask forgiveness from that person you violated? Are they going to want to hear that? Yes or no? No, not generally, not while they're still stuck in their sin. So as you make peace, you will be persecuted. You will be challenged. You will be opposed. People will look at you sideways because they don't want peace. Or at least they don't understand how what you're saying is actually bringing peace. Jesus blessed you and made you not only someone who desires surpassing righteousness, but he made you someone who does public righteousness. When I say public, I mean you're making peace in actual relationships, not just in your own heart and mind and prayer life. In verse 11 now, let's, that's recap. Now let's go to verse 11 because verse 11 picks this up and kind of summarizes it for us. You are blessed, because in verses 3 through 10, it's just general, this is the blessed one, but now he goes to his disciples and he points at them and says, you are blessed, disciples. When? When are you blessed? When they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of who? Because of Jesus. When you're devoted to Jesus and you're devoted to loving Jesus and you're devoted to sharing Jesus with others, sometimes people will insult you Sometimes people will gossip about you. Sometimes people will slander you. They will oppose you. They will persecute you. They will say false things about you. They will impugn your motives. And Jesus says, you're blessed. You're on the right track when this is happening. Not from everyone. If everyone is opposing you, you probably have a, you have a problem, <laughs> right? The people who are for Jesus in the situation should be affirming you, right? And the people who are opposing Jesus will be opposing you. If they're resisting Jesus in that conversation, they'll be resisting you in that conversation. But those who aren't resisting Jesus will be affirming you and encouraging you, okay? And that's why Jesus is saying you're blessed. So he defines persecution. Brothers and sisters in America, you need to hear this loud and clear. Persecution in the Bible is not only going to jail, It's not only illegal laws, though that's increasingly becoming a situation we're going to have to deal here, especially in California of all states in America. Persecution is any opposition from non-Christian and Christian when you're trying to do righteousness and help them out. Okay? It's opposition or resistance from anyone as you're trying to love them and bring Christ to them. And they might persecute you because of because you're trying to bring Christ to them. And they're actually resisting Christ, not you, ultimately. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. But it hurts. They're actually saying my name. Yeah, I get it. it. But it's because of Christ. 
And so Jesus tells us very clearly in John 15, 19 to 21, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. There Jesus is talking about persecution, not from Christians, but from from the world, right? From non-Christians, right? But you also get resistance from Christians. That would be 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, where Paul says that the Lord's servant must be gentle and patient to everyone, gently teaching. And perhaps, he's talking about doing this in the church. Perhaps some of the people in the church who are resisting you, God might grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, having been captured by the devil to do his will. So it's not just among non-Christians that you can get resistance if you're serving the Lord and teaching the Word. It can be even from Christians. And they're not intentionally being caught by the devil, but they are. I might resist you when you rebuke me in my sin. If I do, you got to understand I'm being caught by the devil at that moment. And you need to be gentle and patient, but you need to be firm in confronting me. Because in my defensive pride, I will resist you. And in that, I'm caught by Satan at that moment. And you need to help me. Just understand, whether Christian or non-Christian, that's going to happen. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be resisted by your family members, by your church family sometimes, some of them, different ones at different times, depending on the issue, by, by your neighbors, by Christians in the general evangelical world, and even by the world itself. Here's a couple that was expelled from their family home after leaving Islam for Christ. Today's the ninth. This was posted three days ago on persecution.com in Uganda. John, we'll call him John here, John and his wife have been living in a barn on church property since being kicked out of the family house by his parents, who disapprove of John's conversion to Christianity. After becoming seriously ill, John, formerly a Muslim, eventually decided to attend a church service and seek healing through prayer. He placed his faith in Christ, prayed, and was healed of his illness, vowing never to return to the mosque. Praise the Lord, right? When John's parents and siblings learned of his conversion, they expelled him, his wife, and their three children from their house. Their children have been staying with his wife's relatives while they take shelter in the barn. John is looking for work and a permanent home for his family. Pray, and we'll pray this tonight in our prayer meeting, pray that they will find a home soon as they are now expecting their fourth child and that John will be reconciled to his family and be able to share Christ with them. Pray also for his wife's pregnancy. This is not abnormal Christianity. This is normal Christianity. Converting to Christ and then insisting that others be made right with Christ is normal Christianity. Because God puts our, he makes us love God and love others, once we get saved, we can't help but want others to get saved. We can't help but tell others about Jesus. We can't help but care about them as well. And that brings on persecution because you won't renounce Christ. You won't stop obeying the word. Amen. So church family or Christian, let me talk to the individual Christian here, application, expect persecution. Don't be surprised by it. Be surprised when you're never resisted by anyone. You're on the wrong track when all men, to use Jesus' words, woe to you when all men speak what? well of you. If everyone speaks well of you, you stand for nothing. 
and you're not following Jesus. Amen. Expect persecution. Expect resistance when you're confronting sin and sin has captured people. Number two, to the church family, encourage each other in persecution. It gets lonely when you're being resisted, and so encourage one another in it. If you're not a Christian, understand this. Christians will suffer inconvenience and even opposition from you because they love you and they want what they believe is best for you. Now, they might be mistaken. It's certainly philosophically or intellectually possible in terms of just a statement that Christians can be wrong. And if that's true, then you have to understand that they're just doing what they think is best. Now, I believe it's true. I believe that um, there's no really good argument against it, but that argument is still worth having. Here's the main goal again. Be glad when you're opposed in public righteousness so that you shine Christ's gospel in the world. How can you be glad? First of all, by understanding that Jesus made you for public righteousness. That's recap and then verse 11. Now let's go to verse 12. Jesus gives a very explicit reason here why you need to be glad. Here's the explicit command in verse 12. Be glad and what? Rejoice. Rejoice. And he gives you the reason here. Why? Because what? Your reward is great in heaven. So here's the second reason. Be glad when you're opposed because Jesus will reward you in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. The first reason you should be glad is because you get to make it to heaven. It means you're real. You're a real Christian. In Matthew 16, you guys, are, you guys have your Bible in Matthew. I'm just going to turn to 16, 24 to 27. Just look at the reality of the Christian life. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Here's your reward. You get persecution. But guess what? You're following Jesus and you won't lose your life in the end. You'll save it. But if you decide to save your life now and not get opposition, you will lose it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? What is Jesus saying there? You, you might lose your life here, but what will you gain in the end? Eternal life. Heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation will be yours. Amen. You will reign with Christ forever. Amen. But you will be persecuted here now first. But your reward is great in heaven. You will be put in charge of things on the new earth and have joy. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the rest. Anyone else? Enter into the joy of your master. Eternal joy in the new heavens and new earth. And you will be assigned charge over things in the new earth because you suffered well. Your reward is great in heaven. You're on the right track when you're suffering. How do we know you're on the right track? Jesus gives us a clue in Matthew 5. Look at verse 12 again. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. How do we know our reward is great in heaven, Lord? For what? That is how they persecuted who? The prophets who were before you. Don't be surprised. If you go back throughout the history of God's people, they have always been marginalized and persecuted and opposed. Cain was killed by Abel. Moses was resisted by his people after he led them out of Egypt. They said, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us. Really? They, they said that. They literally believed that Moses and God were, in, were conspiring to kill them in the wilderness. That's why Moses went through all that trouble, to kill them. Um, this is not new. 
Jeremiah was beaten and put into the stocks. They called for Jeremiah's execution for his prophecy that Babylon was going to take over and Jerusalem was going to fall. The king burned Jeremiah's scroll. When they took Jeremiah, um, took custody of Jeremiah, they lowered him into a muddy old cistern to die there and rot underground. They put him in a pit of mud to just sit there and rot until he died for his prophecies. Then they took him out, and then eventually, get this, so all of Jeremiah's prophecies have been correct, right? Then um, some group takes over the city again, um, and they're like, oh no, is Babylon going to get mad at us for taking over the city? Are we going to be in trouble? We need to flee to Egypt to get safety. Like, no, you know who we should ask? You know who's always been right? The prophet named Jeremiah. Let's ask Jeremiah. So they take Jeremiah out. This is Jeremiah 40, 42 and 43, 41 and 42 and 43. Read the story. It's really sad. So they take Jeremiah and they're like, just give us your advice, Jeremiah. Whatever you say is from the Lord, we will obey. So Jeremiah says, all right, thus says the Lord. Don't go to Egypt or God will oppose you. Stay here in Jerusalem. Even though they know that you took over, they will grant you mercy and we will flourish here. Let's just set up our houses here in Jerusalem. So then they listen and they say, nope, nope, nope. God didn't say that. Wrong, that's wrong. Um, No, we're going to Egypt. God, God clearly didn't tell you that. You're lying. God didn't tell you that. You're lying. And then they take Jeremiah to Egypt. Jeremiah has never been wrong of all his prophecies. They take him out because they give him the credibility. When he tells them what they don't want to hear, what do they do? They resist him. They oppose him. Guess what, brothers and sisters? That's life in this broken and cursed world. You will speak for God and be opposed. And you're just like the prophets. You're just like the greatest of all prophets, who's also the Messiah and King and God-man, Jesus Christ. Was he not opposed? You will be opposed. And what's the reward? The reward is not only reigning on the new earth, the reward is God himself. Psalm 73, 25 and 26, who do I have in heaven but you, says the psalmist, even Old Testament, Old Covenant saints, who do I have in heaven but you, and I desire nothing on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, how long? Forever. God is my reward. If I suffer here now like the prophets before me, I get God. I get God in the new creation forever and ever. I will see his face. His name will be written on my foreheads. That's why uh, Luke 12, 32 says, Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. The kingdom will be yours. You will reign with Jesus. You think I'm making that up? Revelation 22, one through five. Let's get a quick vision of heaven just by listening to God's words here. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the ethnic people groups. And there will no longer, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in this city, the new earth, And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need light of lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus will give you the kingdom. Your reward is great in heaven. 
And so what's the command? To be glad in what? Be glad in what? Rejoice in what? In persecution. Be glad and rejoice in persecution. Did the saints do that of old? Is this crazy or do we actually have examples of people rejoicing in persecution? About midnight, Acts 16, 25, Paul and Silas were in jail. And what were they doing? Praying and what? Singing hymns to God. Rejoice in the Lord always and again, I say. Where were they they singing? They were singing songs of joy in God, God's grace, God's love, God's mercy. They were singing to God and prisoners were listening to them. These are not normal prisoners. You can't stop them when they're glad and rejoice when you put them in jail. You literally have nothing else you can do to them. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Hebrews 10.34 talks about Christians. For you Christians, you sympathized with the prisoners and you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you knew that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. That's what Christians do. With joy, they let their stuff be taken by the government because they know they have a lasting possession. Their reward is great. So 1 Peter 4.13, Peter says, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. And so we sing songs like, Christ the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and here's the line, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. When you endure storms and persecution, your reward is better. Amen. The calm will be better for going through hard times on earth. So brothers and sisters, the key to shining the light of Christ, here's the key to shining the light, the light of Christ, is joy in opposition in order to love. This is, this is, how, you, this is how you shine for Jesus. You rejoice in opposition in order to love those who are opposing you. That's what's different to the world. They don't get that. It doesn't make sense. Pilate with Jesus didn't make sense that Jesus was willing to go to the cross and not giving a defense. Say something, Jesus. Tell me why you're innocent so I can set you free. Not a word. He doesn't defend himself. There's this strange joy in the midst of this pain. That's why Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's different. That's bright. That's shiny. That's salty. So church family, meditate on heaven and the joy of living with and for Jesus for all eternity on the new earth. Church family, let us remind each other, look at each other this Sunday after service and say, you're not crazy for, for living for heaven. Just tell people that around you, okay? When we do the one-minute thing, start with, you're not crazy for living for heaven instead of earth. You're not crazy, okay? Tell each other that. If you're not a Christian, understand that there is a heaven and a hell. And we very much, we very desperately want you to not go to hell. We all deserve to go to hell. Everyone here deserves to go to hell. We're all sinners before God. But we keep insisting and convincing and persuading and pleading with you and explaining Christ to you so that you might be saved because we do believe in heaven and hell. 
Brothers and sisters, Christians, everyone here, if you're at home, if you're at school, if you're at work, if you're in retirement, if you're at church, if you're in the neighborhood, keep the big picture in mind. Keep eternity in mind. Keep the new earth in your mind and rejoice in opposition. Okay, so be glad when you're opposed in your public righteousness so that you shine as Christ's gospel light in the world. Why? Why should you be glad? Number one, because Jesus made you for righteousness. Number two, because your reward is great in heaven. Number three, because you are salt and light. You are salt and light. What does verse 13 say? Let's look at verse 13. You are the what? Salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. What, is it, what does salt do? What does salt do? It preserves, and if you have something bland, it what? It gives flavor. So is this saying, some say it's also the covenant of salt in the Old Testament. There's a few verses on the covenant of salt, and it's, so it's saying we're representing the covenant. I could see how that might be biblically true, um, but I don't think that's the case. But if you think so, it's not necessarily, it might, it might be the right one. I don't think it's the right one. But here, um, is it preserving, when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, is he saying that you're preserving the earth or that you are flavoring the earth? Here's, let, let me read to you some verses. Listen to Colossians 4, 6. It says this. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. That's talking about flavoring, that verse. Your speech should be gracious. It should be flavored with salt. It should be gracious so that when you talk, people sense your, your graciousness. So maybe we're to be the salt of the earth in, in the way we speak and flavor the world. Or... Preservation. Maybe salt preserves. Well, salt does preserve. Maybe that's what Jesus means here. If you had meat and you wanted to keep it from spoiling, rotting, and decaying, what do you do today? You put it in the what? Freezer, right? Now, back in Jesus' day, did they have a freezer? Any outlets to plug in your freezer to? No, there's no outlet. There's no electricity. So how did you preserve meat back then? Salt. You, put, you use salt as the preserver. So what is, what is Jesus saying in that case? If that's the case, Jesus is not saying flavor the world. He's saying, disciples, you need, to, you need to, quote, arrest corruption and prevent moral decay in the world. You need to arrest corruption and prevent moral decay in the world. That's what Craig Blomberg has said. He also said, we are not called to control secular power structures. Neither are we promised that we can Christianize the legislation and values of the world. We can certainly speak and vote, but we can't promise that we can Christianize the legislation and values of the world, but, but we must remain active preservative agents, indeed, not only preservative agents, indeed irritants, I like that word, indeed irritants in calling the world to heed God's standards. We dare not form isolated Christian enclaves to which the world pays no attention. Retreat is not an option. Hiding is not an option. Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. You need to be salty. You need to be irritating. In, now, don't take that the wrong way. You could sinfully be irritating. But I'm going to mention a bunch of issues at the end. Just I'm going to machine gun a bunch of issues at the end. And it's, it always irritates some people in the world. But if you're salt and you preserve, you need to be a preserved agent and need an irritant so that the world would heed God's standards, at least hear God's standards. To summarize, here's a summary. The two most significant uses of salt in the ancient world, flavoring and preservation, 
Um, here's what one commentator says. They, I, either both of those uses would provide an appropriate sense here. You are disciples who provide flavor in the world you live in. And or you also prevent corruption by continually speaking God's truth in this world so that they don't go as far as they would have if you remained silent. If you would have not loved them. If you lovingly engage and speak, you should prevent some corruption in this world. The two ideas are not incompatible, says one commentator. Disciples are to make the world a better place. Now, your, your contribution to the world, making it a better place, might not last more than five years. That's okay. Jesus doesn't tell you to worry about the results. He just tells you to be salt. Okay? Now, what happens to useless salt in verse 13? Let's look at it. But if salt should lose its taste, if it should stop doing its job of flavoring, how can it be made salty? Answer, he doesn't give the answer, but how can it be made salty? Or can it be made salty? His answer is no, it can't. It can't preserve if, it's use, if, if, if it stops having its effect of being preserve, preserving or, or um, flavoring. It, it's useless now. It cannot be returned to saltiness. So what's the, what's the result? What's the action? It's no longer good for what? Anything but to be what? Thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What happens to useless salt? It gets thrown out. Salt that has no flavor is no good. Salt that no longer preserves and you're using it as a preservative is no good. It's useless. What good is a flashlight without batteries? A battery run flashlight without batteries, I should say these days. What good is unsalty salt? What good is a fisher of men who doesn't fish for men? What good is a disciple maker who doesn't make disciples, who doesn't disciple what good is a gospelizer who never gospelizes? What good is a peacemaker who never attempts to make peace and risk his own or her own personal comfort? What good are they? They're not good. They're useless. They are to be thrown out and trampled by men. In Christian terms, if Christians are salt, if you're not salty, you're not a... Christian. You're to be thrown out. And if you read through Matthew, being thrown out has the idea of eternal judgment in what Revelation calls the lake of fire. If you're not salty, you're not a Christian. Now, you don't have to, you can't make yourself salty to become a Christian. This third point is that Jesus made you salt and light. That's why you're glad, because Jesus makes you salt. And if you haven't been made salt, then Jesus hasn't made you salt, which means you're not a Christian. That's why you're useless in regard to preserving and flavoring the world. Let's move on, though. Let's go to verse 14. By the way, the reason why I say you're never Christian, just a presupposition I need to say here, it's because we believe the Bible teaches, I won't defend here now, but you could never lose your salvation. So it's not that you were a Christian at one point and then you lost your salvation. It's that you never truly were, though you might have thought you were. But let's go to this verses 14 and 15 now. Not only are you the salt, not only did Jesus make you salt, he also made you what? Light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, if you read the Bible and I said, if you knew the Bible and I said, who is the light of the world? What's your answer? Jesus, right? Yes. Jesus would be the light of the world, obviously. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. So who's the primary light of the world? Jesus or you? 
Jesus, right? Jesus is the primary light of the world. Now, go back, look at Matthew 4.16. You have Matthew, you're there in Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 4.16. Jesus said, the people who live in darkness have seen a what? A great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then from there, Jesus speaks. So who's the light dawning in darkness? Jesus is the light dawning in darkness. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a quote from Isaiah 9, talking about this light coming in the darkness. And Isaiah 9, that's Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. When you get to Isaiah 9, 5 and 6, it says, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. Who is that talking about? Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world in Matthew 4 and Isaiah 9, and then Jesus takes that, Matthew takes that reality that Jesus is light of the world, and, Jesus, and then he quotes Jesus saying that you disciples are what? You are what? The light of the world. You are light by virtue of being his disciples. You are light by virtue of being united to Christ. You are light by the fact that Christ lives in you and his spirit lives in you and his truth is written on your hearts. You are light because you, are, you have been made God's people through the new covenant Jesus, now here, understand this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is stating, this is where you need to know grammar. You are the light of the world. Is that a command? Yes or no? No. Jesus is not, Jesus is not stating an aspiration. He is stating a fact. Christian, you are the light of the world. But I haven't shared the gospel with anyone. I haven't gospelized Christian or non-Christian for six months. If you're truly Christian, guess what? Last six months, you have been what? Well, you are disobedient. (laughs) But you are still, and you have been, the light of the world. You're still the light of the world. When you're in sin and you're stuck in unrepentant sin as a Christian, you're still the light of the world. He's not saying aspire to be the light of the world. He's telling you a fact. You are the light of the world. That's who you are. And therefore, let's read on in this verse, verse 14. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't be hidden. Your light can't, I'll use a double negative here. Your light can't not shine. It has to shine. It must shine. It inevitably shines. I mean, remember back in, the, in those days, right? There's no, all you have is starlights. There's no light, light lamp post out, right? Um, Cities were usually built on hills because that's where you could build walls and protect yourself from enemies. They had to climb up a hill to attack you. So cities were built on hills. And in cities, there's a lot of people who live there. And at night when it's dark and they need to see, what do they do? They don't have electricity, so what do they do? They light a what? They light a torch, they light a lamp. If you're in a city, you have a lot of people there lighting what? Lamps and torches. So if you're traveling in the countryside and you see a city on a hill at night, what will you see there for sure? Light, you can't hide it. Two reasons. One, it's on a hill. Two, it's dark outside, but there is light because a bunch of people are lighting their houses and the streets with torches at night. It can't be hidden. It's impossible for it to be hidden. You can't can't add any more darkness to hide it. If you took all the darkness of the whole universe to put there, it still couldn't hide it because darkness can never overcome light just by nature of the reality of what they are. Darkness is not something that that overcomes anything. It's just the absence of light. But if light is present, then the darkness by its nature must be gone. Okay, so a city on a hill can't be hidden. 
If you're a Christian, you can't not shine. You're at work, shutting your mouth, you're still the light there at work. You're there ashamed of the gospel, you're still light. You can't not be light. God has made you light. That's who you are. And if that's true, you can't hide. So then, but I do hide. I thought you said I can't hide. Well, let's read on. Jesus says, it can't be hidden, yet, verse 15, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In other words, lights have purpose. You don't, light your, you don't turn your lights on in your house and hide them. You strategically place your lights in the house to give as much light as you need for your purposes, right? That's why you say, should we put the light over there or should we put it over here? Why do you do that? Because you have a purpose for your light. It's not to be hidden. It's to maximize its purpose of shining light. And so you choose and strategically place lights in your house for the maximum benefit of those in the house needing light, right? That's what you do. Jesus made you light. He made you bright. He made you unable to be hidden in the dark. He made you with a purpose of lighting up the darkness. You might wish that Jesus could you could you might wish you could turn off your light at work, but you can't, actually. You are the light of the world. So church family or Christian, embrace and realize that God has changed your nature. You are, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. You're a new creation. You are now salt. You weren't salt, now you are salt. You weren't um, um, you're salty whether you know it or not. You are now light. You're bright whether you know it or not. I am not telling you by this point in the sermon to be bright or be salty. I am saying, I'm merely echoing Jesus, you are bright. You are salty. That's just a fact. You just need to embrace that fact. All right, let's go to this last point. Be glad when you're opposed in your public righteousness so that you shine Christ's gospel light in the world. You do that, number one, by, uh, why should you be glad in persecution? Because Jesus made you for public righteousness. Why should you be glad in, in, persecu- in persecution? Because um, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus will reward you. Why should you be glad in persecution? Because you were made, Jesus made you salt and light. You're just being what you are. And lastly, here's the command now in verse 16. Be glad when you're opposed because Jesus sent you to shine as his light. Look at verse 16. In the same way, now you get a command. Here's a command. In the same way, just like you don't hide a lamp under a basket, but you put on a lampstand so it can be maximally used, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others in relationships. In other words, be intentional with where you place the light. The light is going to shine, but you need to intentionally let it shine in those places. Intentionally place yourself in dark places and shine the light of Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what you're to do. Why? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? good works and glorify God in heaven. What does that mean, to glorify your Father in heaven? That means when they see your light, they see Christ's light. And when you see Christ, you see who? Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. When they see the Father through seeing the Son in your light and life, they will see the goodness of the, the, the glory of the goodness of God. Amen. They will see that God is good. 
and God is righteous, and God is holy, and God is gracious. And from there, you can gospelize them and seek to lead them to Christ. So the good works here is not just sharing the gospel. Some have strangely applied this verse as saying that the good works is speaking of the gospel and only speaking of the gospel. That is just not what this text is saying. The, sh- the light shining is good works. Now, is speaking the gospel a good work? Yes. yes, it's the best work. It literally is the best work you can do is speak the goodness of God to other people. But it's not the only good work. There are a lot of other good works that we're going to read about even in Matthew 5. And all of those things are to shine the light, to give glory to the Father in heaven. So your good works are your righteous deeds, your righteous acts rooted in Christ, beginning with your being made right with Christ, and then you spreading the goodness of God in Christ and His righteousness in all kinds of public acts of righteousness and peacemaking, reconciling efforts. Kingdom life results in kingdom witness. Kingdom, when the king changes you, then you begin to be a kingdom witness. The joy and gladness in opposition is what stands out as salty and bright. What is the light that shines even in your good works? It's that you're happy and rejoicing while it's happening, okay? That's why the main command here is be glad in persecution. Be glad when you do public righteousness because in your joy, you shine the light of Christ. Church family, the light shines brighter. When does the light shine in the city? Is 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 the city hard to hide because of one torch in the city? Is that why a city is hard to see in in the, is that why a city is able to be seen in the darkness? No. What what makes a city so visible at night? Many lights, right? The light shines brighter when there's many lights. And salt, how good is one piece of salt? One grain of salt. So you want to preserve things. And like, oh, oh, you need some salt? Okay, and you, I give you one grain of salt. Is that going to preserve your meat? What about your French fries? Just, I just want to flavor my French fries. Oh, you want some flavor? Okay, here, oh, hold on. Let me, let me give you, here's one. This is a big piece, though, not a small one. Let me give you a big piece of salt. Here's one big grain of salt. Is that going to help flavor your, your large fries? No. In a similar way, brothers and sisters, that one grain of salt is useless, and one torch isolated is not easily seen, when we gather together as a church family, when we share life and gospelize together in support of each other and gathering together on Sundays to be responsible for each other's discipleship, we shine brighter. So church family, share your life, share your burdens, share your sins, share your temptations. Share your joys and shine for Jesus. If you're, not a, if you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, join a local church so you can shine your light with His people and be salt in ways that multiply your life. You want to make an impact? I talked to you in the beginning about changing the world. You want to change the world? You want your life to count? Move your church. One of the things I like to say is move your church, change your world. You want to change the world? Move your church. Move your church towards Christ. You might not see it in your lifetime, but in eternity, you'll look back on the, you just, I just came to church every Sunday and just try to encourage people and pray for each other, and I'd pray for them during the week, and I'd contact them once in a while. You do that for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, the world would have been drastically different if you did not do that. 
You won't see it now, though. You don't get to enjoy it now because God doesn't want to puff your head up. He just wants you to be faithful Sunday after Sunday, conversation after conversation, confession after confession, restoration after restoration, rebuke after rebuke, sermon after sermon, little by little, just be faithful. Christian, place yourself, if you're going to be light, if you're going to let your light shine before others at work or in church, place yourself positionally, intentionally into relationships and situations where you can be you. I love that. Where you can just be yourself as God has renewed you to be. Where you can be yourself as God has renewed you and recreated you to be. Shining is inevitable, so don't overdo it. Just faithfully and sacrificially love God and love the people he And so I'm reading this text. I'm just thinking, hey, I want to shine for Jesus. I want to shine for Jesus. So I don't know what that means. Obviously, I can't be sharing the gospel and be like, okay, guys, let's set our Bibles. Let me read to you. But I just want to be me. So I don't want to be um, less vocal about Christ. I don't want to be overly vocal and overdo it. I just want to be me. So if God puts a thought in my mind that has to do with God, I'm going to say it. If God doesn't, then he doesn't. But just, so I'm not putting pressure on you to like study all the apologetics books and answer every objection before you share the gospel with people. Just be you. He's already made you light and salt. You don't need to study first to be light and salt. You just need to be there, love God and love them, and you'll be fine. You'll shine in some significant way that you might not even notice, but God has eternal purposes that he has ordained for that conversation and for that moment. Just be there. Don't run from it. Just be there and be you as God has renewed you to be. So we gospelize. If you get chances, bless. You guys know what I mean by bless? I haven't been doing this as much in this church. I need to do this more. Bless is an acronym for five things. Bless. Bless other people in their needs with, in word or deed. Listen to others' stories. Listen to them. Understand them. And then listen to God. And then E is eat. Eat with people. You want to be salty and you want to be bright? Eat with people. Eat with non-Christians. It doesn't have to be a profound conversation at the, at the meal table. Just eating together bonds you together. Eat. S is speak. Speak God's word to others, Christian and non-Christian. And lastly, is S is Sabbath. So bless other people. See their needs. Meet them. Listen to their stories. That's a great act of love, to actually listen to people's stories. Listen to them. E, eat with them. And then S, speak God's truth to them. Speak God's truth in love to them. Have you ever heard of John the Baptist? You know a story about John the Baptist getting beheaded for what he tweeted? His social media post on Facebook and Instagram or whatever the newest social media accounts are? Here's what he tweeted. King Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. And that's his wife, his brother's wife, who he was sexually and morally um, with. That was his tweet. That was his social media post. That was his public statement. And that got his head cut off. Is that the gospel? No. But is it, is it, is it true? Is it help, is it, would that help make peace between King Herod and God? And Herod with his brother? And Herod with this adulterer? And Herod with everyone he rules over? Would that make peace? Would that promote righteousness? Yes. And he spoke the truth in love. Speaking God's truth lovingly and boldly in our culture is what peacemakers do. That's one of the things we do. So here's where I'm going to become an irritant, okay? Just briefly. Here's why Christians are irritating to the world. You don't have to make all of these your single, singular passion. Let me just read you a bunch of things that no one in the world likes all of these things. 
speak against, and I'm not speaking from a political center, but a theological and ethical center, which has political implications. So you can't avoid it being political in some ways, but it's not about being political in terms of your party. And this actually steps on all sides, okay, this list. Speak against structural racism and ethnocentric oppression and for the dignity and fairness of God's image bearers. Speak against abortion and for adoption, foster care, and life. Speak against oppressing the poor systemically and speak for um, encouraging and equipping them and understanding their situation to help them out of their situation. And there will always be poor. I'm not saying you could finally solve it, but I'm saying it's to speak against the oppression part of it. Speak against so-called gay marriage and for the joy and flourishing that comes with sexual purity and morality and a biblical understanding of marriage. Speak against gender as a social construct and for the gift of biological gender and gender distinctives reflecting the beauty and unity and diversity like the beauty and unity and diversity in the church or in the trinity. Speak against divorce and for the permanence of marriage. Speak against materialism and for the things that really matter in life and eternity. Speak the truth in love against relativism and for the truth that can and should be discovered. Speak against pride and self-centeredness and speak for humility and service and Jesus' fame. In all of these things, point them to Jesus. At least let that be your intention. Even if you're like King Herod and you only have a short tweet that says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Let your intention of that tweet be the glory of Jesus and the gospel being believed and treasured. Will that irritate people? It does. It's salt and light. Here's the problem. We haven't rejoiced in opposition and shined our light as we ought to have. Have we? We've attempted to hide it in our hesitations and our excuses. We've been convicted and resolved. I'm going to do it, only to fail and sin again and again. Our world needs light, yet we have dimmed our shine. We haven't been faithful. You can't do it on your own. But there's someone who did. Jesus Christ was the light of the world, is the light of the world, and did he shine his light? He, shined, he shone his light in the dark world and he attracted followers. Did he attract opposition as well? He did. Even still, he never stopped loving, gospelizing, and doing public righteousness and peacemaking. Not all the time to everyone everywhere, but wherever God had called him to do specific ones in his path. He didn't heal every blind person he came across, but he healed some. He didn't raise every dead person. He healed three. He raised three. Is it three? I think it's three. Yeah, three at least. The point here is that Jesus, the light of the world, shone his light. And yet on the cross, he was the one covered in darkness. He hung on the cross from 9 to 3, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., around noon to 3 p.m. He hangs in darkness. The light of the world, who never once dimmed his light, was covered in the dark judgment of God's wrath. The one who never should experience a moment of darkness and judgment experienced it all for all of his people who should have been shining their light and didn't. Jesus took God's wrath and judgment for our failures, for our sins, for our neglect, for our silence, for our passivity and our inactivity. Christ bore our sins. Praise the Lord. He didn't stay in darkness. He rose on the third day to eternal life and light that would never, ever be put out, not in Bellflower and not around the world, not ever again. 
Christ's light will now shine forever because he rose. His light and life are now inextinguishable and eternal. It's everlasting. And now he has the authority in heaven and earth. And he enlightens and makes you a disciple to send you to be his salt and light in the world. If you're not a Christian, here's the good news. It's not just for Christians. I just told the good news for Christians. Here's the good news for you if you're not a Christian. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You're a sinner, and you and I are deserving God's wrath. God is holy and righteous, and he will condemn you and I to hell forever for our sins. But Jesus died for your sins and rose from the, from the dead if, for you, to give you this offer, and he had paid for your sins and took your wrath in your place if, if you will repent from your sins, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus. So he's calling you now to trust in him and turn from your sins. Children, shine your loving light in honoring and loving your parents. Parents and spouses, shine Christ's light in your patience and your repentance and your love towards your spouse and your children. Singles, shine your light in your service for others with the opportunities you have in your singleness. Workers, employees, shine in working toward the Lord and not for men. Students, shine your light in learning in your schoolwork, not for a grade, but for learning about God's glory in this world. Retirees, shine your light in sharing your wisdom and your experiences and listening to the stories of the younger members of this church. If you're discouraged and weak, Jesus made you salt and light. Don't try to fix yourself. Don't try to make yourself salty. Lean on Him. Rest in Him. Enjoy Him. Pray to Him, and He will empower you to shine. Be glad when you're opposed in your public righteousness so that you shine Christ's gospel light in this world. Be glad because Jesus made you for public righteousness. Your reward is great in heaven. He made you salt and light, and he sent you to shine his gospel light in this dark world. So here's my final call. Brothers and sisters, even in the face of potential opposition, right now pick one relationship this week that you will engage in. Even in the face of potential opposition, pick one relationship this week that you will engage in with gospel intentionality and shine the light of God's goodness and righteousness of, in Christ to them. Pick one, engage this week. If you don't, you'll go against God's intentions for you this week. You won't make the difference that God intends for you to make in eternity this week. And you will remain crippled by the fear of opposition and difficulty. But if you do that this week, if you take that risk, you'll shine the light of Christ. Others will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You'll make an eternal difference, and you will be glad as you draw near to God and experience his goodness and his love and his security in your life. Even when they oppose you, do not be scared of opposition, brothers and sisters. Engage. You are the light of the world. Be glad in opposition and change the world in the ways that God has ordained for you one day at a time, one week at a time, one relationship and moment at a time. Father, help us to shine for your glory without your help. We're done. So help us, we pray, until our final breath to shine the light of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.